In the name of the crucified and risen Christ, amen. The writer Thomas Wolfe, not the author of Bonfire of the Vanities, but the early 20th century author of Look Homeward Angel, famously wrote, You Can't Go Home Again. He's right. He's right. You can't go home again. And we have all said it or heard it in a variety of ways. You can't unknow what you know. You can't live in the past. You can't pretend your life hasn't changed once it has. That doesn't mean we don't try. Maybe we long for what seemed a simpler time, maybe for a time when we felt ourselves more in control. But whatever it is, it's a deeply human impulse to want to go back to something that felt better, more secure, or at least familiar. A deeply human impulse that doesn't work. Today, we have two crystal clear examples of people trying to go back and failing spectacularly. The first is Peter. When we get to this point in the story, Peter has had both the report from the women of Jesus' resurrection, and then not one, but two encounters with the risen Christ. As it says in the gospel you just heard, this is the third time. Easter night in the locked room in Jerusalem, and then a week later, Jesus came back again, the second time for Thomas. How many of us would like or think we'd like such direct, unmediated encounters with Christ? This story tells us we may want to think again. How does Peter respond to these three encounters, not to mention what he's already heard from the women? He doesn't know how to respond. He doesn't know what to do. So he does what we do with that very human response and says, I think I'll go back, back to what is familiar, back to what I know, backwards. I am going fishing. I was a fisherman, let me do that. What I love in this passage, one of the many things I love in this passage is he's not alone. All the others say, great idea, we'll come too. Which is pretty weird because they weren't all fishermen before. One of them was a tax collector, but the draw to the past, to the way things used to be is compelling. Well, surprise, it doesn't work. All night in the boat, they got nothing, nothing. Until Jesus, who is relentless, turns up. And it's worth noting, by the way, that without setting foot in a boat, Jesus already has fish and bread on the grid. For all we know, he's got coffee brewing for their breakfast. He's all set. They got nothing. So there's Peter, who wants to go back, our first example. Then we get our second. Our second is Paul, 
or as he's known, as we find him in the Acts of the Apostles, Saul. Saul is a Pharisee, and he is a zealous and vicious persecutor of Christians. He's good at it. In fact, and this matters, he was the one who urged the crowd to kill Stephen, a deacon of the brand new Christian community. And thanks to Paul, Stephen is the church's very first martyr. Stephen was stoned to death. Now we might think that Paul never met Christ until his encounter along the road to Damascus, where Jesus says, it's me, the one you're persecuting. But we would be wrong if we thought that was his first encounter with Jesus. Wrong because after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, people meet Christ, encounter Jesus through his followers. And yes, that means through us. As Stephen was being stoned, he had a vision of heaven opening, and he looked up and he saw the Lord, and then after that, he said to those who were killing him, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It is Stephen's quite remarkable paraphrase of Jesus saying, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul didn't hear Jesus' words from the cross, but he heard Stephen's, and in those words was hearing Christ. He didn't know it at the time, but Paul encountered Christ, and Christ's forgiveness for the very worst of sinners. And Saul, soon to be Paul, was pretty close to the top of that list. However, just like Peter, Saul decided to go back to his job and his familiar ways. And just as with Peter, it didn't work. There he was, en route to Damascus, struck down. Peter had a bad night on the boat. Paul got thrown from his horse and was struck blind. You can almost hear the phrase, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. But whether you're Peter or Paul, you can't go back. You can't go home again. Now within this congregation, we have people who are in lots of different places in their relationship with Jesus. Some of you who are here don't actually think you have a relationship with Jesus. Some of you aren't sure what it is, but feel like something's going on with you and for you. Some are here who have had powerful encounters with Christ and are trying to find the ways to make that faith and that relationship visible and tangible. And some are here longing for such an encounter. And I will confess, I have said this to people individually, but I will say it now from the pulpit. One of the things I love about being a priest in the Northeast is that no one's here because there's any social pressure to show up. 
I don't believe for a minute that your neighbors are like, where are you going to church? You going today? They don't care. <laughs> so you're here, and it's got something to do with Jesus, even if you're not sure what or not sure it's true. You are all here. Now, the church is not magical. The church cannot conjure up Christ for you. But the church is the place where Jesus promised to be present when we gather, even if only in twos or threes, present in the scriptures, present in our prayers with and for one another, present in our love for one another and our struggles with one another, and present in the Eucharist, the meal he asked us to share together until we gather with him in the fullness of the kingdom. And that meal in which he promised he would always be present in the bread and in the wine, his body and his blood. So you're here. We're all here. And that counts. That matters. Even if, like Peter or Paul, you plan to go right back to doing what you've always done for the other six days of the week. To which I say, good luck with that. These stories, that one from the Acts of the Apostles and that one from John's Gospel, both printed in your bulletin, are long and wonderful. But I'm going to provide you with an outline, a summary, if you will, which I hope may prove useful to you, may help you realize that you are on a journey of faith or recognize where you are in that. So step one, exemplified by both Peter and Paul, is denial. That's the, I'm going backwards. Yeah, I've heard the stories. Yeah, I may have felt something, but I'm going fishing. The second is what I like to think of as revelation, which you can put more colloquially as God gets in your face, maybe gently. Throw the net on the other side. See how that goes. Maybe not so gently. Why are you persecuting me? And that leads, though these words are always used, but that leads always to confession. It leads to the recognition of the ways in which if you're Paul, or if we think about some of what we do in our life, maybe we have been actually persecuting Christ. Or if you're Peter, it means recognizing that the reason you want to go back to fishing is because there's that horrible three denials of Jesus that you did when he was in the high priest's house. You know Jesus? No, I never heard of him. You're one of them. No, I don't think so. You're a Galilean. I don't know what you're talking about. Peter has been carrying that all through his other encounters with Jesus. And here's Jesus. And he knows it's Jesus. And he needs to find a way to get through, to confess. And Jesus does that. For Peter, it's those irritating questions Peter, 
Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Simon, do you love me? You know everything, you know that I do. Yes, Jesus knows everything and that's why they are having this conversation so that Peter can know that Jesus knows and still loves him and has a mission for him. Tend my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. And for Paul, that confession comes with darkness, with a real blindness and grief for three days until someone comes, a messenger of Jesus, someone like us, who really doesn't want to talk to Paul and goes anyway, and raises him up. And the scales, something like scales, fall from his eyes. What does Peter do? He becomes the apostle who seeks to spread the gospel to the whole world. No barriers. What does Paul do? Paul seeks to include everyone. This man who couldn't bear to have Jews who became Christians now wants the Gentiles to become Christians. What they both do is give back what's been given to them, which is compassion and love, which is tending and feeding the sheep. We deny God is revealed to us. We confess and have our confession accepted. And then we are transformed and become like Jesus, full of compassion. Like I said, that story in Acts and that story in John's Gospel are long stories. Your story might be long and complicated too. But those stories are clear and ours can become clear. Denial, going home, going back to what we've always done is not in the cards. God is after you and God will find you because God loves you. And when God shows up, there will be for us some recognition of the ways in which we have ignored Jesus' claim upon us or actively sought to thwart God's will for us and for the world. But our confession is always met by God's compassion, which in turn frees us to be compassionate. On Easter, and you don't need to have remembered this, but on Easter, I said that maybe like the women leaving the tomb, we needed a little time to adjust to the reality of resurrection. And I said, take the time. But the time comes, and maybe for some of you here or some of you watching online, the time is now. The time is today to meet the risen Christ, own who you are, and get on with becoming who Christ needs you to be, who Christ needs you to be for your own sake and for the sake of the world because Jesus 
and Easter just keep coming. Amen.